Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's message. All right, let's start with the word of prayer. Father, we come before you this evening. We thank you so much for our ability to, to obviously come before you, to study, to be encouraged, um, and, to, um, and to know how to live uh, in the crazy days that we're living in. So, Father, uh, we pray that you would illuminate us with the Holy Spirit, that he would be our guide and our teacher, and you would show us things about ourselves that we need to work on. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, preparing for perilous times. Again, the whole theme that we're, we're working through here is how do you and I start living or preparing to live in the crazy days in which we are in because it's going to require extra stuff spiritually from us. And, and I'm, I'm going back to um, the scripture um, where Paul is using... This passage, 2 Timothy 3, but you, have, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, and afflictions. There's nine of them. And, and how to deal with the times in which he was living in and now the times that we're living in uh, in the last days. So um, let me get to where I want to talk about the doctrine. So... Um, We've talked last time about the warning that people are going to fall away from doctrine. Now I want to go right into exactly what he was meaning about this. Now, when we're talking about doctrine, obviously you're, you're, you can go into uh, you know, typical uh, studies like uh, Christology and theology and anthropology. You can go into you know, harmatology, all the eschatology, all these different studies of the Bible. Okay, That's what Paul's referring to is the teachings of the Bible which we call that theology, uh, proper theology. Okay, and so I'm not going to sit here and teach a class on, uh, on Christology or eschatology or anything like that. That's, that's what you have to learn on your own as you're reading the Bible. You have to learn all the topics. Okay, but here's what all the topics will do. In under, in, in, and this, let me summarize what going to seminary would actually do for you if you studied all the topics when you... Go to a seminary class after three years. What you're going to learn about is really four realities. All systematized dog doctrine that comes out of the Bible, whether it's Christology, eschatology, ecclesiology, any of this, all centers on four things. And if you understand the four foundational things in which theology feeds, then you will understand how you orient yourself to the reality of the Bible and the reality of God. And the four are here. Doctrine teaches, one, the truth about God. Doctrine teaches the truth about reality. Doctrine teaches the truth about us. And doctrine teaches the truth about others. It's that simple. And it doesn't matter if you're studying ecclesiology, you'll find those four in it. Eschatology, you'll find those four in it. Christology, you'll find the four in it. So um, this is where... I want to I focus in on now and start drilling down to a certain level to show you how to orientate yourself to a difficult circumstance or times that we live in. So let's talk about the truth about God, okay? 
And the truth about God comes with how he wants us to orient ourselves to him. It may seem fundamental, but it's really not. Most people don't understand how to actually orient themselves towards God properly from a biblical perspective using theology. Now, here's where we're going to start. This is, the, this is Jesus, Messiah, quoting, obviously, Deuteronomy 6. And this is the foundation to understand how to relate to God. And, of course, he's asking them, they, they ask Messiah, what's the most important command? You've known it, you've heard it, but let's unpack it. He says, the most important one, answer Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay? So that's the Shema. Okay? That's Deuteronomy chapter 6. So let's first start with what the, the, the Shema is trying to say. First, hear. Now, when you see something that simple, you're like, okay, what, what, what is it doing? There's a significant point here with the word hear. Okay? You'll see it in the book of Revelation. He who has an ear... Let him hear, okay? So in order to relate to God properly, you have to be able to hear. You have to be able to pay attention. You have to be able to one that that's notices things. You have to be able to be in tune with how the spiritual world works. Most people do not know how to orientate themselves to seeing the spiritual. Now, we're not talking new age. I'm not talking about you know cults or anything like that. I'm, so, I'm talking about seeing the handiwork of God and, and understanding that when you see it, that this is something different, that this is different than what humans produce. This is different than what fallen angels or demons produce. This is coming from God. And the only way you can do that is you have to be able to hear spiritually because there's a thing that's linked to hearing spiritually. Faith comes by hearing. So the, the, the faith that is required for the person, the first thing is necessary is they have to be able to hear. They have to be able to orient themselves towards hearing and listening to God. So what does that imply? It implies a lot. First off, the fact that the biblical characters, like whether it's Abraham or whether it's Moses seeing the burning bush or or any of the other characters, what you'll notice about the characters is they do not seem to avert their ears and try to cloud out when God's trying to get their attention. Okay? And so, uh, an example of Moses. <clears throat> the fact that Moses stopped and he sees a burning bush... And he just doesn't keep going on. The fact of the matter is, Moses had saw many burning bushes because they'd been struck by lightning or whatever on the, the desert floor, okay? But what, what caught Moses' attention was that there's a situation over here that catches my attention, but it's different than what I normally see and hear, there's something different, and that difference is the spiritual sensitivity to be able to hear God when God is calling to you, okay? God calls to everybody. That's, 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 that's 
He puts the call out to everybody, whether it's for salvation, a call to service, a call to anything, okay? But the thing is, the, first, the command is you first must hear. You first must be willing to hear, and you must take what you're hearing by faith. That's the whole point. So the beginning of this orientation towards God is predicated on the person's ability to express faith. That's, that's the foundation, okay? So that's how you first orient yourself towards God is by faith. You're going to believe in something that you're not going to see. There's no sight, sound, smell. He's the invisible God. So when he says, Shema, hear, O Israel, first he's asking Israel, please pay attention and listen to what he's about to say. What is the first thing? He says, O Israel, obviously speaking to Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh, our Elohim. Notice the term our. You see the term our? He's our God. He's our God. And the idea that Yahweh is used in this as a personal name of God means that God is not an impersonal God, that this God that you're supposed to listen to is a personal God that wants personal relationships with his free will creatures. And the fact that if the society of Israel will orient themselves to him, he will be their God, plural, and it will actually focus the community towards one orienting factor. He's our God. If he is our God, then we do work together to please this God. We don't work independently. We don't work apart from others. We work with the others that believe in this God. And the essence of what God is saying is not only am I a personal God, but the, 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 the relationship that I want is a familial family. There are no lone rangers working without the other believers to Yahweh. So in order to relate to this God, you have, you have to understand that he's relational, but that relational aspect will include the horizontal others as well. Now, and, and, and here's the key. Our God means that, that the group that follows him is oriented to the way he wants things, to the way he says things are. And that is where you actually get unity because the group is oriented to the head, to the top of the leadership. Okay, So follow me on this. Because if you do not understand this, then you will run the risk of Satan taking you and making you an isolated Christian and not oriented towards not only Yahweh, but towards the Christian group that holds the same ideals as you're supposed to. So what's happening is, right now, as an explanation of this, Christians are doing their own thing. And then, because they do their own thing, their orientation to God is fouled up because they somehow are not listening to the same thing you, the group is listening to. When you have people, like for instance, at a board meeting on Monday night, saying that they can fully practice sin and call themselves a Christian, okay? 
I'm not, I'm not doubting salvation. I'm just doubting you can't make that statement and say, well, I'm a, I'm a thieving Christian or I'm a, I'm a uh, uh, you know, whatever, adulterer Christian or I'm a, you know, a murdering Christian. You, those two tags don't go together. It's one thing if a person struggles as a Christian. It's another thing if I come out and I brag about my sin as my identity and then claim Christianity is attached to that. That means that the person is not oriented to the proper God. That means that that person is not oriented to the proper group. That means that that person has not made Yahweh their God. Okay, in the sense of orienting their life. That's how it works, okay? So then he says the Lord is our God. So here's what the thing is. If you look at the foundation of America, you look at the foundation of any church, the way in, it, in order to have unity within a nation, a culture, a, a, a country, a school district, like we dealt with, um, the only way you can have unity is you have to orient orientate everybody to the one central unity issue, which would be God in this case, okay? If you do not have a proper orientation to God, then everybody's gonna do their own thing. Everybody's gonna have their own agenda. Everybody's gonna do what's right in their own eyes. And hence, that's what you see the chaos with like the current high school district board and the people that attend those meetings. They're totally confused, they're blinded, they're in the dark, and they have no clue if they're coming or going. They really don't. It's, it's a, a cesspool of evil because they're not oriented properly to the one true God. Okay, so there's no unity. You'll never see unity. It'll only be unity towards tribalism or unity towards a cause, but not oriented to a being like God. Okay, then he says the Lord is one. The Lord is one, okay? In the Hebrew, it's hechod. It's where we, uh, it's actually the same word we use when a man and a woman get married. They form a echod, uh, they form a one, and it means a composite unity in Hebrew. So even right now, you can see um, in uh, the Shema that uh, the Trinity is being referenced in this because the Lord is one in, in essence or nature, but there's a plurality of identities within the Godhead. So even in the Shema, it's there in the word echod, a composite unity. Um, but what is this uh, idea about one? The Lord is one. Well, th the basis of this is monotheism, okay? The basis of this is monotheism, and what we start realizing about monotheism is that monotheism towards the God of the Bible, obviously not like Islam or anything else, but monotheism actually is the thing that can save any country, is the thing that can save any nation, any culture, is they have to get back to monotheism. Why? Because in polytheism, you have divided loyalties to these other gods. And hence, it causes division within a nation and a culture, and it splits up the culture into tribes. So the answer to America's 
division, for instance, spiritually speaking, is monotheism. Now, I'm not go, I'm obviously one step further would go into the monotheism of the Bible, right? But monotheism is absolutely the most revolutionary concept that the Bible gives us for changing our orientation to the world. And the fact that the God of the Bible is not a part of his creation, that he created it, but he's not in it, and he's not a part of it, is absolutely dynamic in, in changing our relationships and how we deal with the culture and how we deal with the world and how we see the physical processes of, of, of life. If you see God as creation, as in creation or part of creation, you will turn into an idol-worshiping pagan. And that's because of the lack of monotheism. And so what, what, Israel, what Israel was doing, I mean, this is starting the nation of Israel, is you're now going to practice monotheism. There will be no other gods allowed. It's monotheism because there is only one true God, okay? But monotheism reorients the society, Okay? Monotheism reorients the values of the society. Monotheism orients the behavior of a society. Because if the one God is at the top, then everything flows from him. Everything comes down. Everything is defined by him and then creates order in a chaotic society. So let me explain this as far as a a Bible picture, and to understand this orientation to monotheism or the one true God. Have you noticed in the Bible that, that heaven or New Jerusalem will be on a mountain? Okay? Now, where did they get this concept? Well, it comes from the Bible, and then you can see this in paganism, and you can see this in ancient religions as they always pictured the deity on top of a mountain. Even in Greeks, they had Mount what, Olympus, Something like that? Okay, it's always on a mountain. It's a corruption of the truth. There is a mountain in the third abode. It's a great mountain, and God is on top of that mountain. Now, let me ask you this. Where is heaven? What is the orientation of where God is at in the third abode? Above. Above. Okay, follow me on that. I know it seems simplistic, but I'm, I'm going to make a point about this. God is always pictured above creation. Why? Because he is the orienting being of all creation. Everything falls under him. Okay? Now think about this. When God appears to, uh, uh, obviously, Israel in the desert, what did he appear, where did he appear at? At where did he, he not as he, not how he appeared as but what did he, where did he appear at when he's given the law a mountain a mountain why a mountain because the mountain represents the mountain in heaven that he is on and so he comes upon another mountain and it's the same orientation I am here and you are here. 
do not let anyone get close to the mountain. Don't let the animals get close because I am above you. And in order to receive revelation to me, from me, Moses must go up and then come down to give out the revelation. So in order to go, you have to ascend and then you have to go down. It's a whole picture of how reality is created. The reality in which you live in is you must understand the hierarchy of where God's at, that he is above you. You are below him. And never forget that. Jerusalem is said to be on a mountain, even though it's only like 25, 2600 feet. It's the idea that the temple is on a mountain on top. It's on the top. In fact, in the Messianic kingdom, the mountain of Jerusalem will be like 50 miles high and a plateau on the top. It will be the highest mountain on planet Earth. I mean, think about that. So as, as the imagery you can see, Jesus will sit atop of a, a, a 50-mile mountain, the highest peak on planet Earth during the Messianic reign. Why? It's the orientation. I'm above and you're not. And you're below and therefore, since I am above, you must orient yourself correctly to me in order to properly live correctly. And if you do not, you will kill yourself. I will kill you. Because if you get close to the mountain and you try to ascend, I will kill you. You can only ascend to me if you have permission or if I allow you in some certain way. And I'll explain that in just a bit. So when, when we're dealing with this, our, our theology is telling us, okay, God is one. There's a, there's a, a, a trinity there's one nature, one essence, one being that everyone must orient themselves to voluntarily. Voluntarily. It has to be voluntarily. It cannot be forced. Okay? So that's another element in theology that needs to be understood. The orientation to this one true God must be voluntarily. It cannot be a gun to your head, you do this or else. It cannot be any other way. And this is why Arminianism and Calvinism is dead wrong because it doesn't understand proper theology and how God's trying to relate to human beings. Okay, now, we got that part settled. Now let's move into the next aspect in verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Okay, so let's talk about love the Lord your God is a Jewish idiom. You have to understand when it says love the Lord, what does that mean? It's It's not an emotional thing. So you have to get that out of your head. It's not an emotional thing. Loving the Lord under the Hebrew understanding means I make God the number one orienting factor of my life. He is my priority. He is the number one orienting factor in every way I live down to how I brush my teeth, is in concert with this orienting being. Everything I do, okay? So loving the Lord is not an emotional thing. It is a placement. It is a position in your life of this God, okay? So 
how in putting him there in this place, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to put him in this place with all my heart. Okay, what does that refer to? That refers to your inner being, your soul, and your spirit. Now, if you're not born again, you can't do that in spirit. But if you're born again, you have a live spirit, and that spirit and your soul, the immaterial part of you, must be oriented towards him. Okay, with all of your inner being, all of your soul and your spirit must be oriented to this position. Okay, second, with all your soul. Now, people, the English is not translating it good. The Greek is the word psyche. And psyche is a metaphor for discipleship. Psyche is a metaphor for uh, sanctification. Okay? So what he is in effect saying, what Messiah is saying is, not only does your inner being have to be oriented towards this top position, but your discipleship, your sanctification must be fully aligned with this position of this being. Everything that you do for spiritual growth, everything you do in terms of service, everything you do in terms of becoming more like Christ must be built on the foundation that you're oriented properly. If you're not oriented properly, you will not grow properly. That's the idea. So good growth will happen only if you're oriented properly. Okay? I'm not, I'm, I'm, hold on to the orientation. I'm going to come to the orientation in just a bit, but I just want to get this out first. Okay? And then with all your mind. Now that's your reasoning abilities. That's your understanding, your thinking, your rationale that's in your brain and in your mind. Okay? So there's a mind aspect to this. It's not just a simple heart issue. It's a mind issue. So what he is saying is that all your cognitive abilities as a human being must be oriented to this one unifying principle or being called God. Everything that you, you think, everything you, you logically deduce, it must be oriented to him. If it is not, you will go crazy because he's the definer of the reality. And if he defines reality and your thinking process doesn't match to that reality, you are going crazy. That's the idea, okay? So even in our own walk with the Lord, if we have our own ideas how things we think should be, you will start getting taints of insanity because this is not, it's not reality. You're practicing things that are not true in reality, okay? So, um, so you got the reasoning, and then it says, with all your strength, and that's your physical energy that Messiah is talking about. So you've got to put all four areas into this orientation. So you have to do physically everything you can to arrange your life in a physical manner and give the best energy you possibly can to orient your life to this one being along with these other three things. So it, it requires physical responses to this. You must orient your life. You must change your life. You must do this. You must do that, whatever, to orient it. Okay. So with that being said, let, let me see if there's any questions before I move on because I, I, I got to talk to you how to orient yourself to him. This is how to relate to him. This is the unifying principle, the unifying deity what scripture is trying to say. 
Okay? Everyone, so far, so good. So Yahweh is one, we talked about that. Your life has to be oriented to him. He's the top, and that's why the visual. Okay, here's where I want to go. In order to love God properly, you must be oriented, uh, be oriented, I left out two, to him, or sorry, oriented him to the reality of sacrifice. And there's no other way to relate to him other than through sacrifice. Okay, so I want you to uh, let that sink in. So Messiah is saying you must love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, right, your mind, your strength. In order to put him in that position at the top of my life, the only way I can put him at that position is I must be willing to sacrifice and have a sacrificial orientation to him in order to do that. So now I'm going one step further in explaining how you love God properly. You must only approach God through sacrifice. There is no other way to orientate yourself to him. Without sacrifice, you can't orient to him. There's no way. Because the orientation, what the theology is teaching us, is that in our own foundation of relationship, we are seriously messed up. We call it the sin nature. We call it the practice of sin, wickedness, evil. You saw it at the Kern High School District on Monday, Monday night. You saw it. You felt it. You can see it. There's liars. Even in the crowd, there's liars. Kids are lying. Teachers are lying. Administrators are lying. Why? Because they're not oriented properly to the one true God. And thus, thus, they have no idea about sacrifice. They do not make sacrifices in their life. That is anathema to them. But the only way you're going to find the one true God of the Bible is you must approach him through sacrifice. You're not getting to him without that because you have a fundamental problem. And it's tainted and it's the problem that's going on in your life now. It's the problem that's going on in the culture. Because when people fail to understand the problem, that people are wicked, people are evil, people will do bad things, then you will not orient properly to reality. If you think people are just good, if you think people just they have the best intentions, if you think people um, uh, you know, just want to live their life and not hurt anybody, you're out of your mind. You're on the level of a mental patient if you think that. Because the reality, here's the thing, the reality is dictating the very opposite in front of you. The reality is you sit in a current high school district board meeting and you see it, you're sitting in evil. How do you not see that? It's very disturbing. How do you not see the evil in the students and what they've been groomed to do? How do you not see the evil in the teachers who they think it's their job to groom kids? How do you not see that? And if you don't see that, you're out of reality. And how do you talk to someone in, that's not in reality anymore? You can't because they're crazy, right? They're just crazy. And I'm not trying to be derogatory at all. I'm trying to say is the further you get away from God, the more crazy you become. And that's the nature of it. 
And that's what the, the theology is trying to tell you. If you do not orient properly to him, you will go crazy. You will lose your life. You will lose everything that you had. And it will all be your fault because you wouldn't orient right. So think about this. I have to then understand that this one true monotheistic God, this, 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 this trinity, that there's a problem with me. I just can't go up to him. I just can't approach him. I can't go to the mountain. If anyone comes to the mountain, they will die. Do not let them put barriers around the mountain, Moses. Anyone comes, they die. So there's something fundamentally wrong. So I must then sacrifice. So I acknowledge the problem in the relationship that I have with this one true God. And here's what I have to be willing to do. In order to get to him through sacrifice, in order to know him, in order to fellowship with him, I must be willing to give up the most precious thing I value in life in order to have that relationship. If not, you're not coming. I have to give up that which I value most in this life in order to put him at the top. And if you will not give up that which is most precious and valuable to you, then you will never, ever orient yourself properly to him. He will never be number one. In order for him to be number one, I have to give up the most precious thing to me. And what is your most precious thing? Your life. That's the most precious thing you have, is your life. It's the value in which God gave you it. And here's what he's saying. Do you want to save your life? And every woman said, yes. You must die then. Because in order for you to get life, you, we have a problem. And you must die to the very thing you're trying to protect. And you, unless you're willing to die to that life, you're never going to see it. And here's the thing. If you don't voluntarily give it up to me, he is saying, then one day I will take it from you. Forcibly. I'm asking you to lay it down now for me, voluntarily. And if you do, I promise you will receive life. For out of death comes life. Oh, now you see the problem, don't you? People do not want to give up their lives for him. Okay, He has showed us the example and provided salvation by dying for us, right? That's the idea, right? And he saved those who come to him, but in order to be saved, you must die. You must die to yourself and your pride and, your, and all of that. You must be humble. You must be willing to accept his sacrifice on your behalf, right? That's how it works. That's the orientation. And so he even provides the sacrifice for you. You don't have to die for yourself. My son will die for you and pay your sins. But you at least have to orient yourself in the terms of sacrifice. Accept my son as sacrifice for your, for your life. 
And if you do that, then you can orient properly. But you have to realize that most people are not willing to do that. Why? It's not, it, it, they see Jesus and they understand, oh, he died for my sins. And they, they, it's, it's not connecting because they don't realize what that means for them. Or maybe they do and they don't want to give it up. Maybe that's the problem. And, and so they're unwilling to sacrifice. Now, here's the other thing. Once you get into this orientation with this God, through the sacrifice of his son, then the very thing that he asks you to do is to die more. And so your, your relationship to him is one of death. And, and so this is the concept of denying yourself, taking up your cross, um, you know, being persecuted. I mean, you're losing parts of yourself as you become more like him. Now, let me bring an example of this to you. Fasting. And I'm not talking about fasting for losing weight, okay? Um, I'm talking about spiritual fasting. What is the concept of fasting for? You get God's attention? What, what is it? At the very core of fasting, it is a sacrifice to him. Because as I go several days without eating, my body then starts consuming its own flesh. And the bad parts of my flesh are the first ones to die. You catching this? So in order to orient myself properly to God, I must be willing to actually start dying. That's what fasting is. It's a, the beginning of death. Now you arrest it and you start eating again, but what is it? That's the purpose is I'm learning to die. And then what the amazing things that come out of that spiritually is that, that, that those bad parts of your flesh die off. They die off and then you have clarity and you have, you have focus and you have understanding, and, and it does amazing things for you physiologically, but uh, it's more than that. It's a spiritual sacrifice. I'm, I'm willing to die to get, it, to get closer to him. I'm willing to sacrifice to get information from him that I need, and so I must die. So here's the thing. Messiah will say it. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, this is a discipleship term, not a, not a salvation issue, okay? So I'm, I, I want to follow Christ. Okay, that's what he says, fine. Let him deny himself. That's the first thing. The first thing is you have to sacrifice to yourself. You must deny what you want to do. You must stop being the captain of your ship. You must orient yourself to the monotheistic God of the Bible and do what he tells you to do. If he tells you to stand on your head and whistle Dixie, you stand on your head and whistle Dixie. There's, just no, there's no questioning it because he's all-knowing. He understands how we were created and how reality is built. Some of the things won't make sense, but he doesn't care. That's not your problem. It's what he's telling you. So the first thing you deny yourself, take up his cross, 
What is take up the cross? Well, this is what you have to do when you publicly identify with the humility of the Messiah, taking up the cross. Uh, taking up the cross was a, a, a Jewish idiom even before Jesus went to the cross. It's the idea of shame, that you have to be willing to take on the shame in which this world will give you being related to this one true God. Because anyone that's related to him and orients their life towards him, the others that don't orient themselves will hate them, will come against them, call them names, lying, do all kinds of foul things to them. So taking up the cross means I'm willing to bear the shame of identifying with this one true God publicly and the cost that it, pay, it gives me. And then he says, and follow me. And the idea then is the only path that you can follow, the narrow way, which you're already on if you're saved, you're on the narrow path, and this is the path you walk with God in the cool of the evening. And in order to do that, the path, every time you take a step, it's a path of sacrifice. And you sacrifice every step, every step of the way. If you're not willing to sacrifice, you're not walking. Because in every step, number one, you must sacrifice your ability to know anything. Because like I said on Sunday, you must trust him by faith that one step is ahead and that's all you get. You don't get any information other than that. So I must sacrifice knowledge that I don't have the ability to know what's coming ahead. He does, and I have to trust him for that. So that's sacrifice. I have to sacrifice in knowing, okay, he wants me to do this, but I don't know, I don't know the enemies that are involved here. There will be but you take a risk. I don't know how this is gonna affect my family. I, yeah, I don't know either, but that's the risk. And here's what you have to understand. Men, let me talk to you. This, this whole sanctification thing ain't for wimps. It's not. It's not how they present it. It's hard. And it requires a lot of courage. And, and I, our guys are different, but I'm seeing the culture. We have leadership with males that you saw, like even the State of the Union last night. That is weak males. They're just weak men. Weak. Let me ask you this, guys. Who is more dangerous? A weak man or a strong man? Who's more dangerous? You get rejected three times from art school. Who's more dangerous? It's the weak man. The weak man is Hitler, who gets rejected from art school. They're always looking to settle the score, always carrying resentment with them, always embittered, always angry always trying to make a point, always trying to get their will accomplished and their agenda accomplished, like I saw on Monday night, even with little high school kids even doing it. Hmm. They're not willing to sacrifice. Joe, you think Joe Biden's gonna sacrifice anything in his life? No. Right? You know that, right? That, that's a, a man that will never sacrifice anything for anything. Because you know why he doesn't value anything other than himself. If you only value yourself, you're not willing to sacrifice to anything. But see, you have to see something that's higher than you, more powerful. 
and then you're willing to sacrifice. Okay, so then you follow him, and following him is a, is a, is a game of sacrifice. That's all it is. But notice what he says. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. So you don't want to sacrifice, is what Messiah is saying. Fine. The funny thing is, if you don't want to lose your life in sacrifice and giving it to me, and giving it up to me as the higher value, you're telling me that something in your life is more valuable than me. And that's why I'm number two or number three or number four in your life. So you're valuing something in me. But I'm going to tell you this. He says, whoever loses his life for my sake, if you put me at number one, you're going to find life. So the very thing that you think you're keeping, your life, how you want to do things, how you want to orient yourself in life, how you want to deal with reality, is actually the very thing that's making you die. And you don't see it, do you? Because you value something other than me, and I'm the life giver, you value things that can only give you death. And the more you love it, the more you will die. And at the end of it, you will die because of it. And the idea spiritually, from a metaphysical or, 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 or a, an illustration uh, 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 that he's using is, if you just give it up, your life, you will find life from me and how life is supposed to be oriented and how you're actually supposed to live what we call the abundant life, which no one hardly finds. But you've got to be willing to give up what you want. You've got to be willing to do that. And he says, verse 26, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Now, this passage is the most misused passage in the Bible because people use it for evangelism. It's not for evangelism. It's clearly in the context of discipleship. He's talking to believers. In fact, the context is he's talking to the disciples themselves who are believers. So this is not a salvation passage. So what is he talking about, losing your own soul? It's the same Greek word, psyche. It's the same word I showed you early on. You must love the Lord with all your heart and psyche. Okay, Your, your spiritual life, your, your abundant life. Okay, So when he says, what does it profit to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own psyche? The psyche, the, the, the spiritual life. So you orient your life away from this one God and you orient it to these other things that you think is giving you life, riches, promotions, fame, positions, all this whatever, power, right? All those kinds of things. And he says, but what's the point if you lose your spiritual life? You won't have a spiritual life. It'll be dead. So yeah, you'll be a Christian, but that's about it. And you saw plenty of people that claim to be Christian on Monday night, but there's no life. There's no life because they don't orient themselves properly. There's no life. So you can play the game, call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. But at the end, he's saying, why do you want to gain the whole world and lose your whole spiritual life? That's what he's saying. You'll lose your spiritual life. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What, he's saying, what is it possible in your life and my life that is so important to you that you won't let go. That doesn't, that prevents you from making Jesus number one, making God number one and following his rules. 
Now, how do I know if I've made God the priority? How do I know if I have put him at the top and I'm oriented properly? How would I know? What would be the check on me? There would be a test, not of salvation, right? Because we're not talking about salvation. Salvation is a free gift by faith, okay? But if I'm a believer here and I want to know, am I oriented properly to this one true God of the Bible in, 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 in whom I say I, I worship and who I say I serve and I, I say I put him number one? How will I know if I'm oriented properly? If you love me, then keep my commandments. That's the test. Do you obey? Simple. So if, if, if the orientation of our life is to put God first, love God, then the proof would be it filters out in my life in obedience. So when you see someone on a Monday night at a current high school district board and they say they're a Christian, but they practice sin, what are they telling you? I don't love him. In fact, I'm, I love myself and I'm doing what I want to do. And they don't see it. They don't see it that way. But the Bible, that's what Jesus is saying. You're giving something in exchange for your own soul. So you're willing to die on the transgender issue, are you? You're willing to die on the LGBT issue, are you? It will be the very thing that kills you one day. Because Jesus can give you life if you're willing to die to that nonsense. And he will give you a reorientation to what real life is and real sexuality is, and real male and female is. That's what he can do, and he can turn everything around for you, but you've got to sacrifice. And I just don't know if too many people want to sacrifice. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Now, wait a second. Now we really have a definitive thing here where he's saying, this is not about salvation. This is about rewards. Oh, rewards, yes. Then he will reward each one, each one who did what? Who will he reward in the passage? What is he saying? I'm going to reward those believers who were willing to sacrifice in their life for me. And that was a part of how they oriented it. The, themselves. It wasn't just a one-time sacrifice. It was the way they lived. The way they lived every day was a sacrifice unto Jesus in some form or fashion. And, and maybe it's just as simple as just not doing what you want to do. Just staying within the boundaries of what he says you can do. That's it. And, and, and that's a sacrifice. And you, you, every day until the rapture comes or you're called home, is a life of sacrifice, and that will be rewarded. And this, this life that he says, the abundant life, not only will you experience it when you start the orientation towards sacrifice, but it will extend into eternity because the abundant life is, is, is eternal life, okay? So it doesn't stop after this life. It goes on, and people will have a more enhanced version, if you want to call it, an experience of heaven and eternity than other people will who have been rewarded as such. So their experience of heaven is much different, right? And, and the only illustration I could give you for that is like, you know, 
Let's, let's say you're into some sport and you go to a sporting game um, or whatever, and, and you know the ins and outs of that sporting game, okay? You played the game, right? You understand, and you know the, the blood, sweat, and tears that is involved in that sport because you were there and you did it. So when you watch that game, you see it differently than just a, a simple spectator, don't you? A simple spectator is eating a hot dog and popcorn, and they're having a good time because they're there, no doubt. But it's really enhanced because you played the game, you were there, you actually can see the strategy that no one else can see. You can see this move that, that's happening with a coach. You can see why they're doing this, this shift in the infield. You can see why they're putting that batter up to that, that pitcher. And you know how to gauge the count. Most people can't do that. They sit there and have a hot dog and they have a, time, a good time at the ball game. But when I go, I see a whole different ball game. I, I'm oriented differently. And I actually can, ex I, I, can, I, I can appreciate more of the game when I, I go to a game at a major league level. I see the moves that they're doing. I understand it. I see the inner workings. Most people can't see that. So who's having a better experience? I am. But did everyone have a good time? Of course, they all get, went to the game. But I'm, I, there's something different because of the way I lived. And that's how heaven will be for people. Everyone's happy they're there, but some, because of the sacrifice they live here, will experience at a way, way different level. And it will increase their experience with joy and happiness beyond just the normal person. And that's what I'm trying to relate to you with these rewards. I want that. I want that. I want to be able to say, wow, did you see that angel do that? I remember reading this and I, blah, 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 you know, whatever. And you'll see things that other people won't see. They'll be there. But this is the idea. So here's the thing. You want that? Yes. But then you have to sacrifice. You have to live a life of sacrifice. Now, here's what you do. You know, with all the things that are coming, now, now, now we're going to the real world now. With all the things that are coming, you are going to be asked by God to sacrifice to give up things that you once had that are not available to you. Could be food. It could be freedom. We could lose our freedoms with all that's coming, right? Uh, we can lose our transportation, our ability to move, uh, to go from country to country, all these crazy things, right? Lose our job, all that stuff. What God is trying to say is, is look, if you can orient this way right now, for sacrifice, that this just is your modus operandi, then anything Biden throws to you, anything Gavin Newsom or the state of California or your employer throws at you, you have no problem because you're already in a mode of sacrifice. You're already there. Let me ask you this. Let's take an example of fasting. What if we can't get certain foods? you're gonna to have to go without, right? So how do I prepare if I'm gonna lose food? Maybe I should start fasting now and learn and orient my body to get it used to maybe going a day without food. Maybe. I'm not saying you have to, I'm just giving that as an example of, so that when maybe hard times come and I can't get the most calories that I need that day, my body's already oriented to that. And so it, it wouldn't have that devastating effect on me if I'm pounding 5,000 calories a day, right? That I'm used to that. So it's, just, it's that kind of mindset I want you to have. Anyway, so that's where I want to stop. 
And that's the idea of orienting properly to God, okay? So let's take a five minute break. We'll come back and do current events. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.